Friends, let's pray together. Father, be among us this morning as we open your word. Give us ears to hear and hearts to receive all that you would have us to receive this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In 2002, I'm sitting on a bus in Budapest, Hungary, and I'm doing the very thing that you're supposed to do when you're on public transportation. I'm minding my own business while still eavesdropping in on the conversation next to me. <laughs> now, there's this one particular time where I'm doing this. Not that I did it all the time, but anyways, this one particular time that I'm doing this. And it, it, it stands out in my memory because the reason why is because I know what they're talking about at this particular time. You see, I had been living in, in Hungary for, I don't know, six or seven months at this point, trying to learn the language, trying to immerse myself in the culture, and it's not coming very easily to me. In fact, the Hungarian language is, is like the third hardest language for an English speaker to pick up on. It's a different language. All the syntax and the words and, and, and the grammar is just completely different than anything that we're used to. But there was this one time I'm sitting on a bus and I'm listening to the conversation next to me and I, and I understand what they're saying without a whole lot of effort. And what that told me was that all of my months of training and, and, and immersion in the culture was starting to pay off, that I was actually progressing a little bit. If you have ever tried to learn a second language, you know it's a difficult thing to do. You know that if you're going to learn the language, that the best way to do it is actually to immerse yourself into the culture. You need to, to, to see the world the way that those who speak that language sees the world, because with a language comes a culture. You need to speak that language with people who can speak it better than you if you're going to become fluent. The idea is, is not just to learn the language, but the idea is to be able to communicate. We want the language to become like a second nature to us. We don't want to think about it when we have a conversation. Just like when we're learning, when we learn English, English, we learn it at a very young age and we don't really think about it. It becomes a second nature to us. The same thing holds true when we're, say, learning a musical instrument. If you've ever learned piano or guitar, you know that you're going to spend hours upon hours playing scales and, 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 and doing all the calisthenics to eventually have all the, the muscle memory to be able to play the instrument like a second nature. Same with sports and same with a lot of other things. Do you realize, though, that the same principle holds true with our walk with Christ? That we need to continually grow in the faith? You know, sometimes we come to, to faith and we think we have it all figured out right away. Or sometimes we see somebody else come to faith and we wonder how come they don't have it all figured out right away. Sometimes we take stock of our life after we've been a Christian for a while and we're like, how come I'm not further along than I am? Why am I still dealing with old habits? Why am I still doing things in the old way? We realize, we, we, we realize this reality and sometimes it discourages us. Sometimes that discouragement even comes, even turns to despair. See, when we come to faith, we're given lots of new things. We're given lots of new gifts. We're given a new heart, as it says in Ezekiel 36. We're given a new identity. We're given a, a new way of seeing the world. 
in a sense, we're given a new language and new relationships. Ultimately, it's because we're given a new life through a new Holy Spirit that makes all things new. And so, of course, we have to learn how to live into this new reality. It's a lot like a marriage. After the wedding, you're married. You're definitely married. But trust me, (laughs) you don't have it all figured out. Very rarely does a newlywed couple have much of anything figured out, really. But you have to grow together into this new reality. and You have to learn how to make your way in the world according to this new life. It's not second nature at this point. You have to work at it if the relationship is going to grow to maturity. A lot of times, we look at those who have gone before us in the faith, who have lived godly lives and faithful lives, And we only focus on the latter parts of their life. We only focus on the mature parts of their life. And then we compare ourselves with them. And sometimes we get discouraged when we don't measure up. Take the Apostle Paul, for instance. We spend a lot of time talking about Paul. But we talk a lot about the Paul who is is the missionary, the great apostle, the one who has traveled the world, planted churches, spread the gospel. And yet, we never seem to pay too much attention to the guy who lived in Arabia for three years. You see, after Paul's conversion, he says that he went into the region of Arabia for about three years, and then he spent time in Damascus, and then he spent time with the church in Jerusalem before God ever really calls him out on the missions that he had for him. See, uh, there was a, a, a large period of time in Paul's life that he spent in relative obscurity. Now, we don't really know exactly what all he was doing there, but we do know that he was learning about this new way of living, that he was learning about this new reality that God had brought him into. He was learning a new language. He was learning how to speak about Christ as the Messiah in a way that he never could have before his conversion. We've got to be careful not to compare our own lives with Paul the missionary, the world-traveling apostle, And forget about Paul, the guy that lived in in Arabia for a few years. So this brings us to our passage today that we're going to look at. If you're just joining us this morning, we're in the middle of a five-part sermon series in which we're looking at the five trustworthy statements of Paul. These, uh, These five trustworthy sayings are sayings that Paul gives to Timothy and Titus as a way to encourage them and to guide them in their ministries. And These five trustworthy statements are also an encouragement for us as well, for us as the church as we live out our life and mission. We're in the place where God has planted us. You see, Paul writes these pastoral letters, these letters to Timothy and Titus, and when he does, by this time, he's an old man. He's he's near the end of his life. These are the last letters that he ever wrote, and he's experienced many things throughout his life and his mission, and so Paul is encouraging these pastors and their churches to follow his example, to pass on the, he's passing on the things that he has learned so that they may grow up into their new life in Christ. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to look at the third trustworthy saying of Paul, and it is found in 2 Timothy chapter 4, starting in verse 7. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7, and the second trustworthy saying goes like this. Have nothing to do with 
irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of training in every way. It holds promise for the present life and also for the life of the age to come. This is a trustworthy saying and worthy of full acceptance. So this is, this is the third trustworthy saying, that train yourself in godliness is what he's saying. This is the focus. Train yourself in, for godliness, for it holds value. Your translation may say it's profitable. It may say it holds promise for this life and the life of the age to come. Notice the context here. Paul instructs Timothy to have nothing to do with silly myths. See, all along in the letter to Timothy, Paul has been warning Timothy about false teachers. It's a theme that comes back to uh, quite often. And he's been instructing Timothy and his church um, to guard against false teachings. These silly myths, if you are, um, are false teachings that are just wrong about the world and about God and his plan of salvation and ultimately wrong about Christ. These false teachings are seductive. They are. But they're also very destructive because they create division and they lead Christians away from Christ and back into old ways of living. Now, this was 2,000 years ago. But friends, we still have our silly myths in our culture today, right? Any view you want to find about Jesus, it's easy to find. Just do a Google search. Just do a just go to Barnes and Noble. There's all kinds of, of views about Jesus that are out there. And a lot of these views actually make you feel good, right? If you want the Jesus that's going to make you feel good, you can find him. If you want the Jesus that's going to help you actualize your individuality or whatever, you can find him, <laughs> right? You can, you can find him out there. There's silly myths all over the place. They're seductive. They make us feel good but they're very destructive because all they're doing is just polishing up the old life a bit, right? It's not a new life. Just putting a little polish on that old life. Makes it a little bit more shiny, but still the old life. See, the Jesus of Scripture is the Jesus that heals our brokenness, that gives us a new life, that brings true love and true joy. It's by the power of the Holy Spirit that he grows us up into this new life. And this idea of life that Paul's talking about here is this, this word zoe, this, the idea of the life to come that we live now in the, in the present age. We experience it now. We might not experience it fully, but we experience it truly. Anything else is just a silly myth. And so it's within that context that Paul writes to Timothy and he says, look, the solution to staying away from silly myths is training yourself for godliness. So, if that's, what, if that's how you do that, then perhaps we should ask, well, what do we mean by godliness? What do we mean by godliness? Well, the word that Paul uses here for godliness, it's this Greek word, it's eusebia. Now, it's used throughout the New Testament, but Paul particularly only uses this particular word in these pastoral letters. It's the only places where he uses it, but it's a major theme because he uses it ten times. And these are pretty short letters. And so this is a major theme for, for Paul. Sometimes when we think of the word godliness, we think only of behavior. Well, 
the term itself has connotations of reverence and devotion, even awe. In Latin, it gets translated into pietus, which is where we get our word for piety. Right? And so godliness has to do mainly with our devotion and our reverence of something. But it's really more than just an inward feeling. You see, this word for godliness, it's a relational term, and it carries with it a, a definition of saying something like paying attention to the particulars, to the particulars of a, of a situation. If you walk into the office of, say, a, a president or a governor or even royalty, you're going to pay attention to the particulars. You're going to act a certain way because of who the other person is. You know who you are in relation to this other person, and so you pay attention to the particulars of the situation and you act accordingly. And so godliness is more than just an inward piety. It's more than just an inward feeling. It's also more than just behavior, although that that is part of it. You see, godliness, as Paul is using it here, is this idea about living our life in response to our knowledge and our love of God. It's a life lived in response. See, our, our way of life is absolutely dependent upon our knowledge of who God is. It encompasses our entire way of, of thinking and being. It's why A.W. Tozer, in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, can write, there is scarcely an error in Christian doctrine or Christian ethics that can't be ultimately traced back to wrong or ignoble thoughts about God. That's why Paul says, stay away from silly myths. False teaching must be avoided because ultimately they make God out to be something that he's not. There's another aspect of godliness. This reference and and devotion issues not just from our, our knowledge of God, but also from our love of God. You see, that's actually the main point of all of this. Paul starts out the entire letter to 1 Timothy. He starts out all the pastoral epistles with this statement to to Timothy. He tells Timothy to remain in Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. Don't teach these false myths. And then in verse 5, he says, the aim of our charge is love. The aim of our charge is love. Love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Now, you are probably sick of me saying this phrase, what the heart loves, the will chooses, and the mind justifies. Good, Carolyn's not. I appreciate that. (laughs) What the heart loves, the will chooses, and the mind justifies. I love it because it's an apt description of the human condition. Because, you see, what we love, when we love something, we follow hard after it right? It consumes us. It controls our lives. It controls all of our focus. It controls all of our energy. And we focus everything on attaining to that thing which we love. Martin Luther, the great reformer, once said that the condition of the unregenerate soul is a soul that's turned in on itself. See, the problem in our fallen state is self-love. We love ourselves above all things. And because we love ourselves above all things, We do everything that we can in our power to fulfill those things that satisfy our self-love. But when God gets a hold of us, he saves us not from our, he he saves us from our self-love because he removes the heart of stone that we have and he gives us a heart made of flesh that is receptive to the things of God. That's Ezekiel 36. Again, when we receive this by faith and we grow in the knowledge and the love of God, 
then our focus changes and our energies are put into, into following hard after the things of God. It's why Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says, the love of Christ compels me. It is the love of Christ that compels me. And so here in this, in this, second, in this first uh, letter to Timothy, we're being instructed to train ourselves for godliness, for this devotion to God, for this reverence so that we can grow up into the truth of who God is and we can devote our lives and, and live it in response to this God, the God of scriptures. We train ourselves from godliness so that when we're out in the world and we encounter all these kinds of silly myths, that we can recognize them to be counterfeits. We can recognize them for the false teachings that they are. And when we recognize them as such, Paul says, don't have anything to do with them. Don't waste your time with them, right? At best, they're simply distractions that lead nowhere, and at worst, they are the things that can derail the faith of the people of God, and neither of which lead to life. And so godliness is the goal, a life lived in devotion to the true God by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so as we grow up into this godliness, we, we experience the various blessings and joys of the life of the age to come in this life now, there's also one last aspect about this idea of godliness. When God gives us a new life, he gives us a new identity. But part of that identity is actually a restoration of the identity that we were originally given. You see, at the fall, the image of God in us was marred. But when we're given this new life, that image is restored. And so the idea of godliness is to reflect the image of God back into the world. Paul says, if any man is in God, there is a new creation. There is a new creation. And he goes on and he says that those, new, that those people who have been made new are given the ministry of reconciliation. Given the, the ministry of reconciliation. That's the aspect of the image of God, to stand in the world and reflect God into the world. If you remember last week, we talked about our identity as being part of the royal priesthood. It's a similar concept. Last week, we talked about what priests do. They stand and they represent God to the world, and then through them, God is calling his world back to him to worship him. So that's what godliness is. God-likeness, reflecting the image of God into the world, and it issues from a life fully devoted to God. And so it is living our lives in this kind of reverential response to God that we are encouraged to train for, this godliness, train in this godliness. But that really raises this next question, doesn't it? How in the world are we supposed to train for this godliness and this reverence? Right? Paul says, train for it. And when he says it, he uses the word from which we get our word gymnasium. It's gymnasia. The idea, it alludes to the training that athletes do when they're training for a competition. See, an athlete wants to go into the gym and build muscle and, and, and shed unwanted weight and do all the cardio uh, exercises that, that give them endurance, right? An athlete does not wait to the day of to begin their training. You runners, you marathon runners know you don't, you don't just wake up on the day of the race do some jumping jacks, and then you're ready to go, right? No, 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 you train for months and months, sometimes even years, for, 
for a, a competition and for a race. And Paul is saying that is the seriousness with which we need to take our walk with the Lord. That's the seriousness. Paul says, don't waste time with all of these silly myths, but enter into the gymnasium of the soul. Right? Take your walk with the Lord as serious, if not even more serious, than an athlete does in training for a competition. I get really into the Winter Olympics. This was a good year for me because it was a Winter Olympic year. I, I love Winter Olympics. But it always amazes me how much training goes in, just how much uh, these people devote their lives to training for the possibility of winning a gold medal, right? They, these, these people move all over the world to find the right coach. They devote their entire lives to the possibility of winning a gold medal. Gold medals are great, but they're only temporary. Right? How much more should we focus our entire lives on the promise, on the sure thing of that which is eternal? Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 25, he says, everyone who competes in the games trains with strict <coughs> discipline. Everyone who competes in the games trains with strict discipline. They do it for a crown that's perishable. But we do it for a crown that is imperishable. This is what we're being encouraged to do, is to focus our lives on that which is imperishable, this new life in Christ. Now let me say this. This is not works righteousness. This is not works righteousness. This is not what we're talking about. We're not talking about gaining eternal life. When Paul encourages us to train for godliness, it is always with the assumption that we have already been given the gift of this new life, that we've already been given the gift of this Holy Spirit. You see, Paul understands the human condition better than anybody. And he understands that there is no amount of moral effort or moral training that's going to help us to attain to this type of godliness. Right? In fact, Paul actually never instructs us to do anything. He never instructs us to live a certain way without first reminding us of, of who God is and what God has done for us, and what God has made us to be. And so it's from out of that gift that he calls us to live. It's always a call to live into and from out of that reality. And so this call for training in godliness is simply an encouragement to take hold of this good gift that God has already given to us. And we do that by growing up in our understanding of how the Christian life functions. We and by doing that, we have to develop habits of the heart and habits of the mind and habits of the soul that will sustain us in our life in Christ. So I guess that raises another question then. Well, how do we create these new habits? Well, let me give you three ways that we create these habits that sustain us for the long term of our Christian life. And they're nothing you haven't heard before. It's basically the Word of God, the Spirit of God, and the people of God. These are gifts that God gives us as we train ourselves up in righteousness. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 13 through 17. Paul tells Timothy, he says, look, all scripture is breathed out by God, is God-breathed, and it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, which is a subset of 
godliness. And he goes on, he says, he says, so that the person of God may be complete, may be complete, equipped for every good work. That word for complete is this, is this idea of, so that, of reaching the goal. It's this uh, word telos. It's this idea of having reached the goal. The idea is that we need to keep the word of God always in front of us because it's in the word of God that we hear the, we hear the, the pure gospel. And it's that pure gospel that continually draws our heart to God. It's also in Scripture, in the Word of God, where we're shown what the grand narrative of God's plan for the world is. And so as we keep the Word of God always before us, we can see truly what God is doing in the world. We can see truly that that God has the plan of salvation. And in understanding the true plan of salvation, we can know where we fit into that where we can apply our lives to that and we can adjust our lives to what God is doing in the world. Scripture gives us eyes to see what the Lord is doing in the world. The second is the Spirit of God. When we come to faith, God gives us His Spirit. Romans 5, 5 says, says, God's love has been poured into us into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. See, it's the Holy Spirit who gives us this new heart that's turned towards the things of God, and the Holy Spirit um, enters into us, and and it adjusts our affections, not to love ourselves, but to love the things of God. And so when we train, we listen to the Spirit in our lives. We listen to the Spirit as, as, as it turns our hearts to love the things that God loves. The third thing is the people of God. God gives us the people of God as a way to train us in this godliness. The writer of Hebrews says, don't forsake the assembly, which is the habit of some, but encourage one another. Encourage one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. You see, the people of God, it's not just about just going to church. It's about being part of the people of God so that we can be encouraged so that we can remind each other who God is and what God has has done for us. We've got to remember that our relationship, it's not just a me and Jesus type of of relationship, right? Proverbs says this, Proverbs 13, 20 says, if you walk with the wise, then you will be wise. You see, it's in the people of God that, that we're around those who have been walking faithfully in this new life a lot longer than we have. And so when we walk with them and, we, and we, we listen to them and we learn from them, that's how we train to walk and to grow up into this new life in Christ. Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ. We do this by, we do this by walking with those who have been living lives faithfully, these, these faithful, godly lives a lot longer than we have, and we imitate them. I once heard a preacher say, it seems like after all of these years of preaching, he'd been preaching for a long time, he says, the only applications I can ever really think of is read your Bible, pray, and go to church. <laughs> I was like, okay. Well, it kind of reminds me of this conversation I had with my doctor this past year. So I turned 40 last summer, and I did my I did my yearly physical, and evidently when you turn 40, the conversations change. And so my doctor comes in, he says, 
He says, Mr. Spees, a man of your age, and I'm like, great, now. <laughs> I've now entered into that category. He says, he says you, you need to exercise more, which is not hard because I don't exercise that, that much, but I need to exercise more. <laughs> and he says, and your cholesterol is a little high. He goes, so you need to change your diet. And then he says, he says, yeah, and you need to cut back on the amount of coffee that you drink, which if you know me, that's a lot. And so I kind of laughed at him and I said, yeah, that's not going to happen. And he goes, he goes, well, then you and I are going get, to get to know each other pretty well then. He's like, there's no magic pill to, to, to stay healthy. Exercise, eat right, cut back on your coffee, right? And sometimes that's it. The word of God, the spirit of God, the people of God, it's what God gives us to train in godliness. And so the encouragement is, is to, to press into those. So as we close, let me just ask a, a couple questions. What are the myths in your life that you need to turn away from that are burdening you and keeping you from training in godliness? What are those myths that you're listening to that keep you from training in, in, for godliness? There's lots of myths out there. Let me give you two that are probably the most popular. One is what I call the, the tyranny of the urgent. The tyranny of the urgent. That, that our lives are, are, are always so busy that there's always something else to do. I've got to do this, and then I've got to do that, and then I've got to do this, and then I've got to enter into this, and there's never time. It's this idea that, 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 that we're always under the rule of that which is urgent. The tyranny of the urgent. It controls our lives. Another myth that we listen to is what's called the tyranny of the new, that I've always got to be upgrading something. I've always got to be, be following the next trend. I've always got to be, be ahead of the curve. I'm sure there's plenty of others. But the goal, for, the goal that, that we, I want to encourage you in today is to be careful of the silly myths that we're listening to that keep us from training for godliness, to keep us from focusing on the things that God wants us to focus on. And Paul says that this is a trustworthy statement, that if we train ourselves for godliness, that there's a promise, that this is profitable for this life and for the life to come. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.